it's it's here and we're not gonna waste too much time with an intro and we're, and we're, we're actually doing it <laughs> and we'll give, we'll give you all breaks there will be other episodes <laughs> to break this up but what is As you're about to find out we're gonna squeeze just shy of 20 movies into this cursed episode so uh yep Hey, this is meant to not be an exhaustive uh, podcast. We're not like some of these people out here milking your dollar for one episode on the Jaguar. Because who has the time? I don't even think Stephen Thrower has. We'll get to it. I got I got good feelings about that movie, but I don't have uh, 120 minutes worth of anything about that. (laughs) You shouldn't be. Let's. I think a good rule of thumb with Jess Franco is maybe. Don't talk about it longer than the runtime. <laughs> That's a great. <laughs> that, do you, that do you think of all the? We'll get into this too throughout this whole journey. But one of his greatest strengths is he knows exactly how fucking long almost all his movies needed to be. And so, to anyone out there recording three-hour episodes on one of those movies, <laughs> Uncle Justin happy. No, no, he would not <laughs> be happy. He would be. He'd be make he'd make ten movies by the time you were done with your fucking masturbating show. <laughs> so yes, so as my esteemed colleague William has pointed out, we are gonna take this uh, in a normal person's amount of research and dips and doses, and but we're uh, our our main concern here is we are after. The thing that everyone talks about with this guy, Jess Franco, the the uh, the alchemy, the magic, the hallucinatory um, dispensing of narrative and the mystery, all these things swirl together in Jess Franco's best movies, which outside of like a lot of hard art house filmmakers, you're not really going to find too much in genre. And as we see, he likes to pull apart genre and um, play with it. He, he, you know, he's he's a filmmaker who is frequently come upon and someone sees one of his movies and then they're let down. I think that's a very frequent thing. And we're here to say that sometimes that's fair and sometimes more oftentimes that is because you are not tuned in. The tuning fork hasn't been flicked in your mind and you're not uh you're you're expecting something that you're not getting, and which you, also, you know that shit's annoying. If you're a casual moviegoer, sure, whatever. But if you fancy yourself like a huge movie person, and your taste is entirely based on getting exactly what you want every time you go to see a movie, maybe just call it. <laughs> and I would not listen to any of the episodes called the Franco Files. <laughs> because uh he is not a filmmaker for you so and the, you know ultimately then this is probably not a podcast for you so uh yeah. you're you know if you can't if you can't go on a journey with someone that's different than what you thought you were going to get i don't know why you're watching movies like this yeah you're you might be better suited for one of these horror themed podcasts that have horror <laughs> names the 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 no, you can't. Scary, the scary, the scary people's podcast. Stop it! Stop it! No, you be nice. Okay, All right, there's a beep. <laughs> no, they love us. <laughs> uh, my point is not to 
downcast those. But my point is like, there's, there's multiple ways you can appreciate Franco. You can go that route or you can go with us. And and just and we'll, you know, even though I'm, I try to uh, create as many completists I can with everyone I meet in my life. We are here to do that for you in case you do love Franco or you're interested in Franco or right now maybe you hate him. Hopefully by going through every single fucking thing he ever made, we can just help highlight some of the goodness that is present in even when it gets when it gets pretty tough out there uh, in Franco land. Highlight the good shit that does come through and hopefully maybe that'll give you, like John said, it'll help that tuning fork start to vibrate proper and then you can find the franco that's for you (laughs) absolutely this is not about picking apart his filmography it's about deepening your love and appreciation of this uh, elusive filmmaker and there is so much to tell in this story and we're gonna be some of the i mean we're fans and a lot of this is gonna be new to us too so this is just yeah it's gonna be fun for the for the like two people that have been listening to us since the beginning, why I get emotional about us finally doing this. And I love literally in our very first episode, John talks about that he has seen a lot of Franco movies and he always liked them, but that it didn't necessarily, that tuning fork didn't necessarily go off yet. And that during the pandemic, when we started this, it happened and he was very excited. And so the literal beginning of the show is John's tuning fork <laughs> happening. And here we are, however many years later. This, That's by so the way, I looked, I think this is like 66 episodes or some shit. It's out of control. God damn. That is sort of the fun of this is I was a, I wasn't a casual Franco fan. I liked Franco, but it's the it's the seeing the works that are the not as good as maybe some of his better works that actually truly completes the picture and it lets you know and we love thrower and we love his book but sometimes maybe in his search he was a little harsher on certain titles than i found in my appreciation of them and maybe i was harsher on titles <laughs> that he liked a little bit more so it's it's uh this is going to be interesting and just to uh highlight just so everyone knows the way we are doing this is a reminder that we're going in the order of the tome that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but we are going in the order that these films were being made rather than when they were released because it helps a lot. And like we said, we want to track what's building within this little maniac. And the only way to do that is to actually follow when he was getting these things out of his guts. Um, so we'll be doing that and when films come up some of you will know there are multiple versions of a lot of these um and what we are going to do on the main show here is we will cover the most readily available version so if you've got blu-rays from kino or severin or vineyard syndrome or mondo macabre or what the fuck ever the one the mainline headline one that's on there is what we're going to cover on this main show. And then on the Patreon, John is going to grit his teeth and hear me talk about, you know, the 17 seconds of difference between some of these and why it matters so much as we get down there. So if you really yeah. want, <laughs> I love not doing the work and just reacting to the things Will says. So actually on yeah. this one, I actually will do the work, which is, 
but it's going to be. But there, I'm also being honest with John, and I, I told him I because I love him, I will be honest, and I love watching 100 cuts of the same movie. I can't help it. But when it really does matter and it is relevant to what we're doing, I will let John know that he should also watch the alternate cut. And then if it's just obsessive shit like I love, I will cover those real quick for all of you. So that you get to know which of the four different versions of the demons is the one to take home. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, hop over to the Patreon if you really want all of this shit. Um, the pre the pre-directing Franco scoop and uh yeah, all those alternate shit. I mean um, as, and not even to downcast on I, I'm gonna joke obviously with what Will's about to do, but there is major importance for this, especially when we get later in his career when he's like shooting things independently with Eurocine like something like the obscene mirror versus the other side of the mirror is a vast difference between <laughs> what the two movies are and yeah. stuff like exorcism and the sadist of Notre Dame and my personal favorite third cut sexorcism where we see right. Jess Franco's penis so that's the kind of stuff you're here for the kind of, Some of you might not have known on this journey, we're going to show you Franco's penis. So <laughs> we're all going to look at it, and it's pretty cute. So get ready. <laughs> it is cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with all that said, before we dive in today, um, we just want to highlight again, like we said, we're not trying to do some big thesis thing here. So if you really want to further, so hopefully we wet your whistle a little bit. And if you really want to climb into all the nitty gritty, the exact details and dates and shit and all that about Franco, we heavily recommend three books that we will also be using along this way. But um, the first one, the first big book that really mattered on Franco is called Obsession. And that one is written by Lucas Balbo, Peter Blumenstock, Christian Kessler, and then a bunch of stuff from the hero the creator of Video Watchdog, Tim Lucas. That one is amazing. Um, it is out of print. It's not as obscenely priced as the next one we'll talk about, but it's worth tracking down whether it's a PDF or you've got money, you know. Um, so check that one out. And then, of course, uh, Julian Granger and Stephen Thrower did the insane thing uh, of going through every single Jess Franco film ever made, split it into two tome-like volume books that both weigh like 15 pounds they're so big <laughs> they're beautiful um yeah. and like we said that's the order we're using we're following the map they set out because they actually went got to go to these archives meet these people talk to franco and lena and a lot of people in the world and confirm for sure in what order these films were made all that so that's why we're yes. following that um, yes yeah grab those books if you really want to go further and grab those books, grab two copies of Murderous Passions for us. Uh, because... We can't afford the, the now $450 out of print price tag. Yeah. Also, just because we love you guys, in case it's still up, John and I had a freak out the other day because I was checking. Like three years ago, a link went up that said it was going to be a reprint of Murderous Passions if there were enough pre-orders. I have confirmed with well over 100 nerds that did pre-order that. Still nothing has happened. So we're all out uh, 50 pounds waiting. Hopefully that'll come correct. But in Yeah, I'm meantime, waiting on my I'll refund go. from MIT right yeah. now. <laughs> well, uh, this is a different... This is a different <laughs> okay. So the, the other day I was looking to see if there was any update on that, and I see a link from MIT, yes, that MIT, that had 
the first pressing uh, of Murderous Passions on sale, hardcover and everything. And it was like after shipping, if you signed up for an MIT account, it was like 50 bucks flat. And yeah, they give like, you a shit. discount. Not only do they, yeah. <laughs> they're just like, oh, and here's a discount. You're like, and it sounds like better MIT by the second. Discount. Yeah. yeah. We're like, it's amazing. So the shipping's free, which is good on a book that that is that heavy. Uh, so we got very excited. I sent it to a lot of nerds and I put it in message boards and everything. And then John let me know first. And then a lot of other nerds got the, an email quickly from MIT that was like, that's a mistake. <laughs> so if you see that, it's not real. And uh, you know what? We'll settle for not two copies of it. We'll we'll share a copy if one of our deep pocketed listeners wants to get it for us as a little gift. Yeah. And we'll we'll smooch you. Well, if you want to be smooched, and we will I don't know, we'll do something nice. Cause that really we're poor and we would love to have murderous passions, at least to share that we can sit around cross-legged together with a little flashlight under a blanket, just looking at it together. But um and that I will confess, I had it once. I did used to own the book. And then during my time in Los Angeles, I sold it for drugs. <laughs> so no. we are, we're being transparent with you. I'm embarrassed and ashamed. It was a bad choice. I've got I'm Will innocent. a lot of help. The money will not be used for drugs. Will is a different, and a little, you know, more spineless than when he was on drugs. But that's okay. We're trying to rebuild his spine and get him off drugs, which we you did. You know what will help with both? that book that book seriously will will do will soliciting sex for that book so sure. we, oh for sure yeah well so we're just underlining that and now we're gonna jump into the movies here, here and we are, are you gonna use a music cue from every single one in between them because they're all amazing uh, <laughs> you don't have to do that okay. no i'm not gonna do that but if suddenly people want to start giving us things or like money and we can actually afford to set time aside to do this, I will absolutely step my pussy game up and I will make all these episodes have nice little inch like separators. But right now that's a lot of work and I'm not going to do that. So, but listen along and we'll, we'll clearly map out when we start another movie here. So we are going to start in Spain 1959 uh, this was shot in february it premiered in uh spain uh in june uh well it, pre it premiered in seville in june and then it didn't show up in madrid until 1967 so this is kind of what we're saying about wow. <laughs> things yeah. get made and why we're doing it this way so yeah. we're, in, we're in 1959 with the provocatively titled we are 18 great title <laughs> yes now this is a story involving two girls on a road trip with, with a lot of very broad humor which is going to be a difficult hill for me to climb in this uh series especially in these 60s works but uh mm -hmm. fortunately i'm here to help I love that shit. Yeah, I know you are. So fortunately, <laughs> we, we are off to, if not a strong start, a certainly extremely interesting and provocative start for Mr. Franco's filmography and where he's going to go. So this is about two girls on a road trip. One of them's kind of writing a book or a journal or something along the way that 
Well, eventually you start realizing the story is being told maybe less from reality and more from this girl's imagination. Yeah, it's a it's a a, a great uh, harbinger of things to come in the career of Franco for a very unreliable narrator and a very unreliable camera that has no allegiance to any perspective. <laughs> None. Uh, it's very experimental, but it is very light in terms of what will come. But there's definitely some things in here that are extremely interesting, not just to Franco and where he's going to go, but kind of like cinema, horror cinema specifically of in Spain. So before we get to that, uh, these girls, they're on a trip. Uh, they keep running across one guy who's, I think, her cousin, one of the characters' cousins. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's her cousin. He's awesome. He's just, yeah. a, he's just a really shitty hustler that thinks that everyone doesn't realize he's a shitty hustler, but they do. They're just nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Mariano. So, yes, he's played as a thief, a murderer, a criminal. He's he's basically portrayed as every broad genre baddie in cinema history. Um, and it sort of complicates these girls trip. Uh, we're going to not do everything of the plot here because we still want you to find the mystery and seeing this sort of movie. But um, there is one scene where he uh, embodies a character that we're going to see quite often in Franco <laughs> movies. And that's uh Lord Marion. That is the character's <laughs> name. And Lord Marion is, uh, well, very much a character straight out of Gothic horror and uh, a murderer of women. And, uh, you know, kind of has like uh, this Baba esque look to him which is quite which is just fun when you see this movie and you're you start it and you're like wait I didn't think that was where it was going to go mm-hmm. um and this movie isn't really even I mean I guess you could say it's influenced by what's going on in Europe at the time I mean obviously there was the universal horror movies we have the hammer movies in the 50s which we'll get to all that and how this swirls into all this later but um in Spain, I think the only real horror movie that had come out at that time was something called uh, something the 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 Lair of the Seven the Tower of the Seven Hunchbacks. Um, oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a film uh, basically that you know is about a doctor who like has these hunchbacks that murder for him, and it is very <laughs> Franco esque. Um, yeah. The movie also has these uh, these hunchbacks uh, living in a subterranean city um, that, according to the narrative, was founded by Jews in 1492. So we're now now we're in Spain. Now we're in Spain. Perfect anti-Semitism for this movie because the hunchbacks steal money and they live underground. Jesus Christ! Yeah, so it's okay if you. Well, don't... I think someone was like, like a go- the golem's not enough. Let's <laughs> let's really wait into this. Yeah, let's do seven golems essentially. So it's okay if you don't fondly remember that movie um, or know what it is. That's going to be okay. That was made in 1944. So now we do a major 15 year later jump 
Not many horror movies are being made in Spain at this time. Fonte Terror has not started, but and really in Italy either. Baba, I mean, makes Black Sunday the following year after this. Uh, there was E. Vampiri that he did with Ricardo Freda, but that's also not a strict horror movie in that it's a monster, it's a murderer. So um, so this is shocking that this kind of appears in color at this time and marks one of the first like European horror outings strictly in this kind of like 10 minute segment within the movie um so that's pretty interesting but um you know over the course of the movie though these women kind of realize that yeah this uh a certain game is being being played with the narrative and it ends on a very melancholy ending that i do not want to spoil and yeah it's so good it's it's so good with with very few exceptions, if you are trying and you're interested in getting into Franco's comedies, uh, if you're having trouble, stick it out every time. I promise you, the ending is worth it. Mm. In every, every single one of them. And I'm not saying that I'm talking the strict comedies, and I'm talking about what we're going to talk about in a minute. Calm down. But <laughs> the endings are always so good to his comedies. So stick it out. This is one of the best though, because this is like um, it's a crazy way to start. This is a this is a thing I will harp on endlessly through this whole journey. But and it makes sense, which you'll hear us get into on the Patreon, who Franco was working with and learning from. But this highlights one of the reasons I think I get so pissy when people complain about Franco is they're like, oh, he just does a shitty filmmaker. He doesn't know how to make movies he doesn't know the craft it's the exact opposite actually he knows the craft very well very well he clearly studies movies he literally studied the craft and he knows how to make exactly what he wants to he just is doing something y'all don't like <laughs> but yeah. you can yeah. highlight it with these a bunch of these movies we're going to talk about today because this movie we are 18 is like shockingly well put together <laughs> it's very well paced um the shots are good it's beautiful like the the filmmaking prowess is already there and it's pretty nuts. Yeah, it's this confident. The pacing is that's kind of something I want to harp on. The pacing is really cooking in this, which is going to be missing and maybe some things a couple following. And apart what you think about how they look, which is beautiful, pacing is not something he was concerned with in some of these. But <laughs> this is a great way to start. And uh, the, that melancholic uh, letting go or the sad acceptance of growing older and accepting sort of the imperfections of reality or not accepting them is uh, really quite striking in this movie. So if you want to start at the very beginning with us, you're not going to be disappointed right off the gate with We Are 18. Now, talk about Mike being a little disappointed. Let's move on to the following film. That is something that he is going to expand l- later and better. Uh, but here's the dry run for the ladies known as Red Lips. From Lips. 19, 1960. Shooting date is 1960. It was announced in the press December 1960. Didn't premiere in Seville until 1963 and France in 1965. So, Will, I bet you feel stronger about the first Red Lips than I do. Let's hear your thoughts on it. Well, I love Red Lips, and I think a good way to look at it is uh, one of these books mentions this. I forget 
where the thought was first planted in my head, but uh, people have said before that We Are 18 is the, you know, a dry run, a prequel for the Red Lips girls. I would agree. And it works really well if you just kind of think that the road trip our girls are on and We Are 18 just continues in this yep. next movie. They've been hanging out for a long ass time and somewhere along that way they became <laughs> officially spies. Uh yeah. And this, you know, I don't think I don't think we really need to get into the plot on this one. Um, it's cla- it's classic spy shit. He's having a great time with it. Um, Franco clearly loves and hates spy movies. We'll get to more on that later with some different spy stuff, but it's pretty cool and it, it it's pretty indicative to his interests and the work he would continue to make is that he was like, you know what I think would be interesting? Not these dude spies. He's like, I think it would be interesting if we were focused on two beautiful, young, very intelligent women who can help this stupid Spanish police, which is also a constant theme. Yeah. Catch some motherfuckers, you know? Um, Absolutely. He, he loves, he connects with these women, these female characters more than he does most of pretty much all of his male characters uh, to some degree. I mean, or he finds a symbiotic relationship between all of the genders represented in his movies. I think what's interesting is that um, this movie is extremely stylistic, um, oh, but beautiful. But what you're saying is how it. Another thing we'll notice with Franco is the connections between the movies. That there are characters that pop in and out of these movies that make appearances later that have they if you want there's a universe to franco that just is and there aren't that many stories being used in it (laughs) that's another thing these are stories that are also they're all almost all always worthwhile revisiting that story he doesn't waste it no he doesn't i mean he's he's really uh well if he wastes it, he's doing it in the most creative way possible because Franco definitely was trying to get his bag as much as he possibly was. Like, that's the other thing. He's a lot like these characters in that he's a swindler, but he's an artist at the same time. Yeah. It's also worth noting, I think, in this movie and another theme that Franco loves is, yes, these women want their money and they will continue to do so throughout the Red Lip series, but a lot of the biggest fun for them and why it is definitely part of the we are 18 universe is maybe more than getting money. They're just having a great time fooling dudes. They yep. just have a great time being best friends, living in their swank ass apartment, fooling dudes. <laughs> and then yep. they also get a lot of money sometimes. And it's awesome. <laughs> this movie is a dry run. Like we said, it's very hard to find. Um, if you're one of our most desperate Patreon members, maybe we'll wink, wink, point you in the right direction. But, you know, hopefully it's, it will find a bit release soon. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, but we are going to find a lot more fun with these characters soon. So and just a couple of the things that start here that keep going, not just in the Red Lips universe, but that I love. Um, one, there's a weird thing we'll talk about with the next couple movies. I noticed revisiting these I never had before. There's <laughs> there's a weird joke in Red Lips where someone says that uh, <laughs> that these birds that are not parrots are parrots. 
And it actually starts in We Are 18, where their cousin sells them a parrot that's an owl. And so this is the second one in a row. And it does come back a couple more times. I don't know what that is. I assume people call Franco an owl because he couldn't look more like a little owl. So maybe I have no idea. But this time I noticed I was like, wait, that's an owl that they're calling a parrot. And in this one, I forget what the birds are, but they're not parrots and they're calling them parrots and everyone laughs. All right, now let's. I'm ready for John's favorite. I, this is one that I was really excited um, for you to see. <laughs> yeah, I'm you just going to highlight. So basically, I'll do the little background on this one because that's what's really important here. Is one of the filmmakers that Frango is working with, Leon Klamowski, who's huge. Uh, he is one of the mentors for Franco. So he had worked with him a bunch prior to directing his own movies. Uh, this movie originally, um, Klamowski was supposed to direct. Yeah, but um, I can't remember off the top of my head why he couldn't, but he was supposed to do this. And because Franco had had so much success and his filmmaking buddies were impressed with We Are 18 and Red Lips, they were like, call that dude. He can do it. (laughs) He can can finish this thing. Um, And uh, (laughs) so Franco comes into a movie that's already basically, uh, you know, it's set. He just has to shoot it, put it together. Um, the main reason this movie exists is for the star, Michaela, who was a basically equivalent like an industry plant, right? Like she was the planned Span- Spanish film industry's next star. This is one of Jess Franco's musicals. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and it's uh-huh. great because when it starts, um, it looks like you're in similar territory, just with a bigger budget, two red lips when we were 18. And then motherfuckers start singing (laughs) yeah so all right let me just point something out here that we're gonna have to take to task so at this point while we're going through franco we're still looking for traces of his cinematic style which is going to be very apparent once we get into a certain phase of his career that we're not far from but there is this way that he shoots movies that we talked about with David Gregory in this very impressionistic jazz-like style that hasn't emerged yet. And I just want to point out that he is, like with Red Lips, it's not like he isn't working with great cinematographers. In Red Lips, he's working with uh, Emilio Foroscop, who did, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he did two of the great Jalos for Sergio Martino, Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, and The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. So he's working with people who are going to really make a name for developing a certain European thriller horror style. And that's why Red Lips is interesting, because there are some of these kind of like new wave-ish stylistic flourishes that he's playing with. But when we come to... (laughs) the queen of uh, the tabarine we are dealing with a complete 180 stylistically it's very candy colored technicolor spanish movie i don't even remember the fucking plot to this thing what, what do we well, need- there's so there i i won't get into it too much it's basically just a you know someone who uh Becomes a cabaret star. We can even just say that because that's what's important here, right? And we've seen it a little already in the other movies, but this is really the parts to me in this movie that do start to feel very Jess Franco are the cabaret scenes. You can tell that something is ticking, right? You can feel that he's excited about that. 
Um, and he does, you know, he's not, he was a fan of musicals. He was a fan of all sorts of different shit, but where he's really having fun here is, uh, the cabaret stuff for sure. And what's worth noticing in here, if you decide to watch this one with us, there are a couple moments with masks and that's also something that clearly excites him. And so, and you'll see that a lot through these early ones is the moments where there is cabaret or there is performance of any kind, or there are masks, you can feel it. You can feel him getting excited and maybe saying, actually, can we shoot this one my way real quick? And I, for one, I got to say, as a, a, in the realm of this kind of musical, I don't think it's that bad. I think the songs are pretty good. Um, I do think the pacing <laughs> is pretty rough. Well, it's because but, it's so reliant on everyone talking through the whole fucking movie. Yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, and we, yeah. we talked about David Gregory is what, what's so cool about Franco is he once he's doing exactly what he wants, his characters only talk when they got some shit to say. Yeah. And this is an exposition heavy classic style uh, musical that he just had to follow that script for. But if you keep your eyes peeled for the exciting Franco interests, that'll get you through, I think. Um, and yeah, again, and the music, the music is not bad at all. And maybe well, there's that fight scene, that cat fight scene where the music oh. Starts to so fun. starts to hit on that free jazzness that he's gonna get to in a sec. So yep. Yep. yeah. No, there's there's lots here, I think. And also, I won't spoil where, but something very important happens in this movie. This is where Soul Dad Miranda shows up yes. for a brief moment. Brief. And that Not is speaking. for any Franco heads, that is a very important landmark uh, no, uh, that- to where we will get. In you know 300 movies from now, <laughs> extremely <laughs> important to point out because Soledad Miranda yep. is uh, going it is very important to Franco and uh, why his films go a certain way. But what's happening with this ending scene is very um, runs parallel to what I'm saying here, and also his love of cinema because the first thing that I thought of in the the final scene at the masquerade ball with all the stuff coming down. I immediately thought of von Sternberg and I immediately thought of the devil is a woman. I thought of dishonored. I thought of then the relationship between von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich. This is why I love you. And this is why it was great. We do this. We didn't compare notes before this. And at the top of my page for this says von Sternberg, but it's fun because mine says underworld. Cause that's the one I thought of first. Oh, that sure. crazy silent party scene with the streamers. Yep. Look, look at look at that, everybody. See, you too can think of von Sternberg <laughs> along with us on this journey. Very. Oh, that made me so happy. See, good. now we're now that's what we need. Now we're cooking here. Well, you know, I think Will has made a good case to at least check out the Queen of Tabarin if you really want to go down this path. If you want to skip this one, no one's gonna. No one's gonna hurt you over that but what, what's more important is maybe if you want to skip a couple of these that we go across it's important that you return to them maybe at the end of all this because you're going to see things stuff that might seem root and kind of like basic boilerplate is going to come across like what we're having and especially will right now as revelatory when you spot these things about his career you know, infiltrating things as, you know, these kind of assignments that he was taking over that don't really bear as much of a trace of his personality. But 
you're looking close enough, there's little bits of it, which is going to take us to his next movie in 1960, which I don't know. Maybe we'll have even less to say on this one. Oh, I have more. uh, Well, (laughs) we're going to keep it in the same (laughs) in the same. uh, I'll be be fast. Okay, this is called Vampiresas 1930. That translates towards Two Gold Diggers of 1930. He's he's a movie head and he loves his Mervyn Leroy. It's also was called uh, in France. It was called Some Like It Black. Now, yep. what could we be referring to there? Well, well, um, this movie is uh, this is another for hire one for Jazz, but this one you can tell the reins are loose around certain things. We will get into that and the good stuff that does come from this. So the uh, the I would say very understandable pearl clutching that might result from this movie uh, is the fact that it is um, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a movie that early on it references the jazz singer because we're we're in a movie about the the death of sound right loosely at least that's surround the cloud around it is the death of silent films yes. and so you know and, and despite what we're about to say this is another movie about that that's better than Babylon so absolutely um, <laughs> 100%. But, uh, what happens in this movie basically is that there is this uh, crew of musicians and um they're out of work right we'll just say that they're at they're out of work and uh they are trying to figure out what to do um like we said the whole industry is changing all this stuff but it's also a lot of fun because all these people live together so it's like this weird clubhouse musician things that used to actually exist mm-hmm. um but so the solution they come up with like fuck what are we going to do we don't have any money we don't know how we're going to survive they've given their money to a dude they think is going to save them that they think has disappeared um which is also a francoism um but uh (laughs) so what they do is they're like okay shit there's this big show coming up and uh it is this group of black women uh this group that is only black women and they have this big show coming up what we should do to get this job instead so we can survive is intercept those women at the train and send them somewhere else. And uh, I'll come back to that in a second, because that's important too. Uh, and then somewhere else. And then these people are like, okay, now the dudes are going to dress and drag. And then everyone is going to don blackface and also black body. It's, you know, full, full tilt here. And they get the job. No one notices. So that's the that is the unfortunate core of this movie um yes that's will's description of the movie here's mine uh we we took uh singing in the rain and we're doing singing in the rain and we have a little louis fouillade misdirection at the beginning with les vampires and then it's this birth of silent oh oh boy it's got some stanley donan shit happening and then we're just going to also fuse that with some like it hot called some like it black and instead of impersonating women we're going to impersonate black people yeah here's what i will say here's what i will say about this movie and about that thing i'm not don't worry not going to defend it this is a for hire movie, like we said, right? The shit was all done. So Jess is um, directing this movie. The things that I think he adds, I don't know this for sure. The more I research, the more I'll find out. 
But what I think is interesting here is that no one is really a nice person for the most part in this movie right because what it, it's it's kind of even though some like a hot right like the whole the whole gimmicks right they're criminal criminals or whatever but you know they're awesome and we want to hang out with them and be friends right in this movie one of the first things we see these pieces of shit do is not just intercept that group of black women at the train but they send them to siberia <laughs> there's a close-up there's a close-up on the on the shot of where they have sent them and that is definitely jess i promise that was not storyboarded for that and so jess who is someone who don't get me wrong not without fault in the world of you know spanish not without fault in the world of race stuff in his movies and there's plenty we'll get into but with this one to me it feels like he was like oh shit <laughs> all right i guess i'll make this one you know what i'm gonna let everyone know that everyone in this is a piece of shit not just the evil people who have the money but also these people who have sent these women to siberia when they thought they were going to new york for a show um you know and i think i I think that i just think there's more to it than just a lot of these movies from this time where you can just say wow people were brash (laughs) i do think jess at least like this is fucked i'm gonna at least put in my little my little digs and again it's not enough And it's not like most movies of this time do flirt with casual racism and prejudice, but what's even more brash is literally him just lifting the plots of two very popular American movies and just now I I, I know some people call that him ripping them off. I don't know if, well, in this case, I get that and it's possible, but also this is a guy that does like to play with movies he loves movies uh we might get into in their next movie why he might lie about seeing certain movies but he um, <laughs> he might have lied about what he did uh i think he considered uh this movie a parody i mm-hmm. think he's taken a little liberal visage with that but at the same time it would fit very much into like the parodies he's about to do of spy movies of uh romantic comedies i mean this is just you can we'll give him the benefit of the doubt and we'll just we'll toss it in that field uh this is also a very hard to find movie too so you know good luck trying to find it um but (laughs) it's you know it's a little more interesting than queen of tabarin because of uh well if the salacious details we didn't get to is not enough then yeah so before we get to his next movie, like I was saying, he's a political filmmaker in, in, in a way that people don't really give him credit for. So um, it's let's see. The year is 1960, uh, almost 1961. He is meeting with a producer from Eurocine named Marius Lesueur and Sergio Newman of his spammer. Um, to discuss a project that was going to be called Los Colgados or The Hanging Men. This is apparently a book, and it is uh, the author is the same author. I forget his name here. Bruno Travin, Travin, who did Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And he did a book that is extremely anti-capitalist, an anarchist uh story uh, deals with the revolt of oppressed workers in the mahogany plantations of Mexico at the height of the rainy season. Well, that sounds pretty, pretty good. 
that sounds like a fun movie that I would see. And certainly uh, a tiny micro cinema in New York, my program. Now, that movie, <laughs> that movie um, unfortunately, when it was submitted to the Spanish censor board, didn't go so well. So Franco, here's I'm going to quote Franco. He says what happened. The ministry didn't say no at first. They just treated me paternalistically like I was a dumb kid. Said things like, are you really willing to get yourself into this mess? Shit like that. But in the end, it was approved. I had the French and Spanish co-producers, a cast already assembled. Everything was on the right track. Then a few days before the scheduled start of shooting, I received an official notification telling me in general terms to stick the movie up my arse. <laughs> the powers that be decided to forbid it. So... Now, Franco has actors, crew members, filmmakers, you know how this goes. You got everything ready to go. Maybe I can connect to this. And then life steps in and you do not get to do the thing that you want to do. Now, he's panicked. So one night, as the lore goes, he decides to go visit a movie with his producers and that movie is someone we've covered before, Terrence Fisher's The Brides of Dracula. Now, this is very interesting because it's going to dovetail with another thing that he for sure saw in 1960. <laughs> and I'm hoping to dispel some myths here. Now, when he saw Brides of Dracula, he was talking with the producer Carlos Aguiar. Aguiar, yeah, something like that. Um, it's a hard L because it's just one L. Aguilar. 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 Yeah. Okay. So he decides that I could do this horror thing. So what does he do? <laughs> he makes a movie called The Awful Dr. Orloff, a tentpole movie in this discussion that is impossible to get around. And if you do want a starting place that's easy for the very casual viewer, I, I, I can't think of a better place to start with than the awful Dr. Orloff. Or just uh, anyone who likes horror movies, even a shred, will find enjoyment in this movie. <laughs> yes. I mean, from the very start and in the first 15, 20 minutes, I mean, this movie is like gothic universal horror kicked up a notch. You know, it, it echoes oh. the James Whale Frankenstein's opening and pushes it to this kind of expressionistic level worthy of Murnau or um, any of those, yeah. those fucking crowds. Yep. And this is another one that I, I will very much help make the case. If you're trying to convince people in Franco in your life and they tell you, he doesn't know how to make films or that he's not a good filmmaker showing this. I please, I will, I would love to hear your presentation on how this is not an impeccably crafted movie. It's so it is so beautiful. Nothing is wasted. Um, and we are, we're talking about the 87 minute cut here. The one that if you have the Blu-ray, you will see, we'll get into the other elsewhere. But um, yeah, no, this is just, it shows someone who is a movie freak through and through because he has such a command and understanding of how to communicate things to the audience without words. Um, it's just, oh, it's just absolutely amazing. And the sound design, oh, the soundtrack, and the like also the wind music. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a big thing here, too, where we see Jess 
already knowing exactly, especially with his horror stuff, when and when not to use uh, either an actual song or score and when to let things be silent. Because mm-hmm. this fucking movie, when it's silent, it's so hard to keep, like, to, to not hold your breath because your breath is so loud. Because the silent, it's a lame term, but the silence is truly deafening when it happens in this movie. Oh, oh it's, it's, oh, oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely yeah, amazing. We have so much, so much here that starts everything, really, you know, because obviously we already talked about a bunch of movies he made, but this is really the kickoff for the Jess Franco that uh, you hear about, you know. Yes. This is where, um, it, this is where it really, it really starts to take hold and our boys really got a, a chance to shoot a shot. <laughs> yeah, he really does. And um, this movie kind of, all right, here's what it beats to the punch and here's what it doesn't beat to the punch. What <laughs> it does beat to the punch is one of my absolute favorite horror movies in the history of cinema. Uh, that is Ricardo Freda's The Horrible Doctor Hitchcock. It beats it by a few months, just a few. Um, but they obviously, when it came out in France, they try to, they don't call it the awful Dr. Orloff, they call it the horrible Dr. Orloff. Um, kind of capitalize on the success of uh, the still quite shocking, horrible Dr. Hitchcock coming soon on Blu-ray from our buddies at Radiance. And, and all three cuts. I and all three highlight. cuts. I, this is one of those times where all three cuts, I'm I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> it's like since I met you, it's just that one in the middle of the stone women. That's yeah. you know, John. That's <laughs> kind of. Um, I do love my Italian goths, but, uh, yeah, this is very much in that vein and it, it beats, uh, Ricardo Freire to the punch, even though he was making films, uh, long before this, but, um, what it doesn't beat and let's get into the thorniness of this. It does not beat a certain movie by Jules Franju called eyes without a face. One of the key texts of horror movies and cinema in general. Um, Now, (laughs) Jess Franco admits that he did not see the movie before he put this out. Now, both movies are about some, a surgeon, a uh, a maniacal homicidal surgeon uh, using a, using a manservant to kidnap young women to change their face, to basically remove their face and parts of their face to help his disfigured daughter. Yep. That's where they're similar. What they're not similar in is tone, um, actually plot specifics at all. They're they're extremely different movies. I mean, not to denigrate Dr. Orloff, but the poetry in the Franju film is a little heavier <laughs> than awful Dr. Orloff. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean Dr. Orloff isn't suffused with beauty and horrific images, but the franchise. Well, I think they have, different, they have different goals. They do have different Yes. At, that's the main thing is they have different goals. So everything turns out differently to them. They both show how cops are ineffectual, but. Oh my God. <laughs> so good. But and they, they are, showed that. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I just. Well, what, what are you going to say? No, no, you're good. 
Okay. Well, um, yes. So that's where it is similar to eyes without a face. Now, the thing with this, and I just want to make sure I get all the dates correct. Um, and I want to get this quote, this quote here. So Franco told a magazine of Italian magazine, he says of whether, uh, who beat who to the punch first, he says, both films were shot at the same time. It wasn't possible for me to copy him or for him to copy me. I shot. <laughs> I like that. He throws that in there. He wasn't copying me either. Well, no, <laughs> um, he says I shot in Spain. He shot in Paris. It may be that the story was in the air. It often happens in literature and music too. Ideas are circulating. Franz, you and I discussed this and came to the conclusion that it wasn't possible that we'd copied each other. So, um, Eyes of the Face was really <laughs> no, no, no. That is true. I, I do see. You know, I think. Okay. Well, I think he's full of shit a lot of the time, but I, I think on this one, it, it might be. It might be. It might be true. It might be true, but I think he's full of shit. So here's what else. Here's the facts. <laughs> Uh, 1960, January, France is when Eyes Without a Face um, is released, um, but it first plays in Paris that March. So he says there was no way that he could have copied him uh, because Eyes Without a Face opened in Madrid in September of 1963 and Barcelona in October of 1963. Now, Franco definitely didn't see it in Spain then. But he's also let slip that he liked to go to France a lot. <laughs> and it's clear he's he yeah. to the Cinémathèque Française quite regularly and seen films there. <laughs> well, it's also the time, not that you still can't, but especially then, you just fucking zip all over Europe, man. Like, you know, just hop in your weird little cars with the weird little doors that look like everything's going to fall apart. Zip all the fuck over. And also... It, you know, it's not to be forgotten uh, that Franco spoke a lot of languages. Very smart dude, and he spoke a lot yeah. of languages. And so, hell yeah, he went to other countries and watched movies because it didn't matter if things were subtitled. The dude was good. So I think, I think it's it would be weird if he didn't go see it because it's also right up his alley. Like, and he's you know we we talked about David a little. Like he's a notorious dick when it comes to any other filmmakers and like respecting their work. But correct me if I'm wrong, Fran Drew's one of the only people he didn't really talk shit. On, so. That's my point. That's exactly my point. And also, well, as we said with the, with the Vampirus 1930, with the Fouillade uh, connection, Fran Drew yep. named uh, one of his films after, well, Eyes Without a Face is named after a Fouillade short. So yep. clearly they love the same shit. And it is... Yep. I'm sorry, impossible. He did not see this movie. No. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. But they are different. And I think he was just nervous that he would be called a copycat because that movie was such a sensation. Not in the way Brides of Dracula was, which was a sensation. But when he saw Brides of Dracula, he saw a studio craftsman making a movie. Now, we don't see it that way. But I think he saw a studio craftsman with interesting colors. And he was like... I'm going to spin off that idea. So I have no problem saying that I saw this movie and it inspired me. But the cynic in me would think that, you know, that's exactly what he's doing with Eyes Without a Face and that he's 
I mean, I think you have to be right, worried that it's I, like, yeah. Well, the more I think about it too, and we'll get into it in some of the other films today, but when he didn't like a film or filmmaker or artist, really, he put it into dialogue often. Like he put in little jabs for shit he didn't think was good. And he would have done that as much of a hot ticket as Eyes Without a Face was. He would have made it a joke, you know, like yeah. that would have been his first full spoof movie. <laughs> it would have been an awful Dr. Orloff if he thought it was shit. But instead he's like, this is, this is great. I'm going to not see it and use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So whatever his, the case may be, uh, he gave us the awful Dr. Orloff. Um, with, uh, with one of with one F exactly. Uh, and we're not going to go to the plot because we've kind of highlighted what it is, but what we do start to see, well, one Howard Vernon, big boy. Uh, I know the God playing Dr. Orloff who Dr. Orloff is going to show up in many different facets throughout the rest of his career up into the nineties. So Dr. Orloff has a big family. Let's just <laughs> I think that's it. He has a large family that don't really know about the others, it seems, uh, or they do. So that's the first we're going to see that. We're also going to first receive the the assistant, the uh, the manservant under the guise or the the their mind, their um, they're under hypnosis essentially, and it's the character yeah, Morpho. This is going to also pop up more times. So. <laughs> Morpho will return, but this is key. I mean, the the mind control thing, um, the the sadistic. I mean, I, the movie is a little more sadistic than Eyes Without a Face, and that there's some incestuousness that is definitely connected to something like the horrible Doctor Hitchcock by Ricardo Freda. Like, there's a nastiness to it that yeah. is less of the desperation of a father being turned into sort of a sadistic surgeon like with the Franju film. This is nastier. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And we get we get the voyeurism starting ramping up here, the sex and violence. It starts to be sex and violence instead of maybe a little bit of both, a little bit here and there. It's starting to form, <laughs> I think, in this one. Um, and we get, let's see, oh, there's so much here. We get the the of course, more women dancing, but the some of the longest sequences up to this point, outside of obviously the musicals, but um, we get the women dancing and doing something that he loves where they look directly into the camera while they're dancing for a quick second. And it's not because sometimes he likes a you know, POV shot, but that's not what this is here. They look at us. The women in this movie break it fully and look right at the audience. <laughs> um, yeah, which is great. And that's a big that's a big thing that will continue throughout his whole career. Um, Very meta. Also get, it is part of his meta yeah. excursions into the audience under a form of hypnosis or the audience sort of in a way hypnotizing its characters and willing them to portray this plot for their own enjoyment. Yep. It's a little bit of his showmanship. Like he's a, you know, some of the roots back to when he grew up and seeing those kinds of shows and touring things and all of that. He definitely is interested in that. Um, we also start to get, there have been zooms before this movie, but there are a lot more zooms in this one. And so 
somebody's starting to realize how much fun it is and how effective it can be to zoom in and zoom out of shit really fast. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, he, uh, yeah. he understands that sort of flattening, that space flattening that Zoom's doing. That That is so key, and we're going to see a lot more Zooms, and Zooms are going to be more of a contentious point for a lot of critics and viewers of his films and you know what sometimes he might rely on them too much but oftentimes he is flattening and breaking the fourth wall and the cinematic space uh because when a camera tracks it travels through space when a zoom happens it mimics or i don't want to say flattens but it brings you aware of space in a much more cinematic way. And I know Andre shoot me for saying that, but Andre Bazin was not uh, watching Jess Franco movies and he hated Hitchcock. So suck my dick, Andre Bazin. You you did a lot. Yeah. He did a lot of amazing things, but I will talk shit on that dude. Any chance I get because he was one of the first critics who loud and proud was like, I don't watch those movies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes his uh he he's growing a fascination with the zoom and sort of it's uh yes it's space flattening capabilities and also it's cost saving abilities so yes yes i mean that's the sad um, that's the honest fact is that when you have a zoom you don't have to set up elaborate camera set up, you know it which is hard when you're an independent filmmaker to have to set up shots um especially with cumbersome cameras and lighting and you know he is looking forward to when he's going to eventually shoot things on video or even cell phones and that he is always trying to find the apparatus that is most durable for him as a filmmaker um and uh and that's part of what he's going to learn to explore as a style that is probably still not even well regarded in terms of his own thing and it's more often mocked because people hop on the train at the wrong stop so that's why we're saying right here if you're going to start anywhere start with dr orloff it will uh it it will it will help you delve into it all right so let's move on to his next movie pumped pumped shot my boy Yes, he's in New New Orleans. New Orleans, baby. Um, I'm not sure if I like that, so I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, April 1962 (laughs) shoots this movie. It is released. uh, Well, it's classified for a Spanish release in October of 62. Doesn't premiere in Seville until 1964. Yeah. Again, we're doing this in this order. Yeah, keep reminding you that it's not important what IMDb listed as. It's important. That's true. Also, yeah, I was just gonna say, literally, if you follow along with this stuff, we will send. We'll even we'll send out the. We'll post the list in the order from the book because if you try to look at IMDb or Letterboxd or anything, it's gonna seem like we are just cherry picking randomly. Yes. <laughs> um, but this is this is the confirmed research, locked and loaded order. These things were made. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what we're doing. So don't don't worry if you look at IMDb. And also IMDb still lists a lot of alternate cuts as full separate movies. So it's just yeah, that, best that, to that, avoid. He didn't make 
more than 200 movies. That's just not true. I thought it myself for a long time also. All that, he made not that shy of 200 movies, and that's amazing. But he didn't make like 250 fucking movies or whatever it still says in IMDb. No, no. He was often shooting most of these movies in the same year. I mean, his... His average yeah, what, 14 in the month is the most in one year, I think. Was that 71? Did he was like four or in the 80s? Yeah, it, <laughs> I forget. It's like, but yeah, there's one year that's like 14 in one year. <laughs> He's making movies like his life depends on it. So, but I also love the quote, um, from him where he does an interview and someone brings up shooting movies at the same time. He goes, I, I would never do that. Someone would have to be insane to shoot movies at the same time. I do one thing at a time. I finish it and then I move on. <laughs> Flash cut to Howard Vernon being like, I wish Jess would spend more time on his movies. <laughs> oh, just cut to any. He's such a, oh, we, lo- we love, we love our little owl man liar so much. He's just, he was full of shit in a way that was great. And, and you know what? He didn't need to be full of shit because it works most of the time. Even when he's flipping between these things as fast as he is, it works most of the time. Yeah. But anyway, he might have been a little embarrassed, uh, cons- you know, next to like some of his contemporaries, uh, maybe not in Spain, but, uh, you know, around the world. So whatever the case may be, it leads us to Death Whistles, a blues. Or death whistles, death whistles, blues. blues. But it's credited as death, death whistles of blues. Yeah. We love the translation. We do love that. Also known as Agent 077 Operation Jamaica. Yep. Which I'm going to keep all, all my spy stuff until later. But that title's important for other stuff we'll get to. Thank you for saving that. It's also called we're, Operation. We're it's called what? And the alternate title in France was Operation Sexy. Yeah, hell yeah. That's that's the kind of times we love French people, right there. Which is, yeah, which is like this movie sexy. <laughs> Weird way. There's, to... there's some sex stuff, I guess, but yes. not about sexy. This is a classic film noir storyline. Um it's really not important what the storyline is. It's important what he's playing around with. And that is just like a lot of, a lot of film noir, you know, truly. Um, yeah. Yep. And to start to kick this off because it's at the beginning, when you start this movie, make sure you're already seated. <laughs> so you don't miss it. And as we said, grab the Blu-ray from our friends at Severn. So it looks great. Um, but Jess Franco is in the opening credits, fucking shredding the saxophone. Shredding movie. that fucking sex. And he does the music. He does the music for these. And good God, it's easy to forget how truly talented this piece of shit was across the board. You know, like he's one of those people that like would make you mad if you were friends with him, probably, because he's really kind of great at everything he tries. <laughs> yeah, he really is. I mean, that yeah, he's he's one of those uh Renaissance guys. Like he it's funny how much we love or neckbeard idiots on the internet love to like denigrate this guy as a filmmaker and it's like the guy is incredibly talented and incredibly smart and incredibly satirical and witty he sees all of your things and he's well aware of what you're gonna laugh at and this is probably why he unfortunately had to lie and also because of because of these fucking idiots like saying these certain things like he felt like I'm not being understood and I'm being seen as silly 
or not seriousness or probably what would really hurt his uh, you know his feelings would be an unprofessional because he's like no i've learned the rules i've literally learned all of the cinematic rules so much so that you know we'll get to it orson wells and fritz long are shouting me out i mean fritz long fritz long says anything good about you you're good for the rest of for yeah. the rest of history because we'll maybe do an episode on this one day but i have always maintained we, we did this outside the um the music box one night we were trying to literally think of objectively the greatest filmmaker that ever lived in short description it's got to be fritz lang he gave us just about every film genre we love to this yeah. day and we couldn't he gave no us one in that conversation disparage it no one could we were all like well i think okay shit and our good buddy ben Sachs of the chicago reader and cinephile was like well what about american gorilla of the philippines you know what i rewatched it long right after that it was like this movie is not that bad it's definitely his work kind of, but it's fun yeah but it's kind of kind of kind of awesome <laughs> Well, yeah, I watched it with some like jungle action movies, like of Antonio Margariti persuasion. Perfect. And I was like, no, oh, this movie sings. It works. And it's extremely not Djangoistic. I mean, you could look at that movie next to something like oh, American God. Sniper and uh, you almost see a very similar movie. So anyway, my point being Fritz, Fritz Long, Orson Welles. They think Jess Franco's amazing. So anything about unprofessionalism, throw that right out the window. He learned the rules and then decided to break those rules that he knew and studied so well. Yep. yep. And so we're we're in New Orleans, like we said. Um, and yeah, a, a, on the surface, a <clears throat> very generic film noir plot. But the way this fucking thing is executed um once again in my notes this also made me think of von sternberg again um and it it started with the streamer scene again because he does it he does it at that party the way yep. that party is shot it's so chaotic and like isolating that it feels like the way von sternberg usually shot party sequences which you know some happened to that man <laughs> party zones um well i this think this is another speculate one. exactly what probably happened with him well, and his <laughs> and he saw something he didn't want to see that he also did want to see yeah yep it's true yeah yep but so we have furthering of masks in this one which is cool because you also don't get that a lot in film noir the way this movie uses masks he's again flirting with uh it's by no stretch a horror movie but it has scary moments um, that are great with the masks, especially um, in the silence again in this one, even more so than Orloff, I would say, actually, the the lack of music when he does stop having a blast and shredding that saxophone really hits and you can really feel it in your guts. There's a there's a chase sequence of sorts in this one with zero music in it, <laughs> like made me feel like I want to throw up. Revisiting it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It really, it really does. Again, we already, you know, brought up our buddy Orson Welles, but movie he made with Carol Reed, it makes you th makes one think of movies on that level. I'm not saying this one is, but scenes like that make you think of some of the, you know, uh unchallenged masters of the world of film noir and that kind of thing. Well, Hitchcock, I mean, the young and the clear young and innocent homage 
with the oh my god yep. with the going in on the trumpet um not in black <laughs> yep. not in blackface this time like hitchcock did yes so, uh, hey yep. thumbs up Hopefully. this movie also portrays secondary characters in a mixed race marriage in a completely non-judgmental way oh yeah if i were i would say if i were ever to teach a film noir class both of these would be in there um because of certain sequences and the diving board oh. moment in the movie that is an unbroken shot that crane shot yes oh my god that was and that actually crazy. like kind of broke me out of my like malaise watching it a little because i was yeah. there were moments where i was glossing a little bit and then well, that happened and little, was, when he has to do plotting he doesn't like it but yeah. when he can instead tell everything that needs to be told with zero words and often no music or little music he shines and that scene is nuts the way the wells use black and white is a huge effect on these movies oh and those angles um those yeah, he loves distorted angles i mean and that also not only comes from Wells, that comes from long again like long knew how to shoot like the corner of a room in the most unsettling way possible and Wells kind of took it to that kaleidoscopic funhouse mirror esque like portrayal of these kind of distorted cinematic views, and you know, obviously, this is just mm, a little candy for Franco. <laughs> so, you know. That being said, the movie does feature the very first appearance of another character we're going to see a lot of, Al Pereira. <laughs> Pereira, uh, Pereira, Pereira. You can just say Pereira. I think it's that's funny. always. It always sounds like Pereira. So, yeah. Well, Pereira. they do that thing that's like not quite a rolled R, but I I think it's unattainable for us. Uh, you know, idiot only English speakers. <laughs> right. Now this is interesting, especially with Hitchcock. Apparently, the name could come from the art director who worked on many of his films, Hal Pereira. This guy did art direction for Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, one of your favorites. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Shows again. He, yeah, he's just doing his little cinematic, like, oop, see that? I watch movies. Wow. Oop. Yeah. Yeah. The dude loves movies, man. And it's so clear and refreshing. <laughs> that's yeah. so sick. I, really, I didn't know that at all. That's awesome. Yeah. Al's coming back, though. Don't worry. Oh, don't you? Don't you worry. And the members of his family will be back too. Maybe his granddaughter. (laughs) They're all and so just just hang and you will be too. So and coming off Dr. Orloff, guess who's doing zooms even a little bit more? (laughs) All right. So now taking us. I'm excited. (laughs) Very excited. Before John says it, in my opinion, this is Franco's very first Stone Cold Masterpiece. I don't know if I'll go with Masterpiece, but it flirts with Masterpiece. Oh, well, well I'll, I'll, this is going to be a fun device. To that one. Okay, and I don't disagree. I don't dislike this movie. I quite like this movie. Uh, I do think it suffers right. from a certain thing that we like to bring up on this called pacing but that being said this is a very very good movie this is creepy and this is also very mean, we're hitting on that giallo territory pretty we're knocking on that door pretty loud here 
Well, this is directly where a certain someone stole a certain something. Let me let the folks know what what we're going to get into. Yeah. So this movie, the sadistic Baron von Klaus. uh, (laughs) I'm trying to find its uh, screen when it's shot. Okay. So it's shot in late autumn of 1962. Uh, Its French premiere was September 13th. 1963 and its spanish premiere was january 27th 1964 i don't know why they do shit this way but i guess this is just how it goes so sadistic baron von klaus this is a film uh set in um on the alpines in some austrian town uh a woman found holfen holfen that's right uh (laughs) woman's found murdered and it basically gets people to start thinking that oh no this must be the ghost of the some 17th century sadistic baron named von klaus who uh i mean we're getting in we're really getting our first uh look into people with sadistic tendencies and uh we are (laughs) and torture dungeons and stuff now you know, this was also be done being done by stuff that Antonio Margheriti was doing in color in the time in Italy in the 60s. Um, I'm forgetting the name of that exact movie in my head. Hold on. Hold the phone. Wait, is that um, hair? Is that a... no? It's not the long hair of death. No, what is it? No. This is gonna sh- the Virgin of Nuremberg. It's the Virgin of Nuremberg, yeah, what yeah. I'm thinking of. And the Virgin of Nuremberg, I, let's see when that was shot. Oh, 63. Okay, so interesting. Okay, so this was shot after uh, Sadistic Baron von Klaus. Maybe that's why Antonio Margheriti changed his name to Anthony Dawson on that one. <laughs> I don't why, but... Um, We'll have some fun too when we start to get to Jess's really weird uh, aliases in his filmmaking career. Because up to this point, we just have like Jesus Franco or Jess Franco or my favorite Jess Frank. <laughs> yeah, I like Jess Frank when that one pops up. That's when I like really pump. That's when I light the fucking you know uh, black and mild, and I, I pump. <laughs> yeah, my fists. <laughs> so yeah, that's the that's the plot. Will is going to really, it seems like, go off on this one. So I just want to say that this movie is quite good. It, I do have issues with its pacing, but some of this movie is shot so fucking beautifully. Like, <gasps> there's the scene where they find the second body in that field. Now, that looks like some fucking Bella Tar shit. And yep. it holds it. And you, it that was like it almost made me mad that the movie didn't open that way, but it's like well, there's there's a different version you'll get to see that's that's his original version that opens a different way. Does it open with that shot? I'm not going to tell you because okay. truly you'll want to watch that one. No, it's you'll want to watch it. All right, all right, the, all right. The alternate title for the Spanish version, which if you have the Blu-ray and all that. You're going to be seeing the version we're talking about, which is also great. But the Spanish version is called Hand of a Dead Man. And it's a little bit different. Really? So there is 
I could, I, you know what? Even though we talked shit at the beginning, I could do three hours on Paramount <laughs> class, but I won't. Some practicing. Um, what I want to start with, John already highlighted, is the visuals in this thing. And one of the things I want to highlight that also most filmmakers, not just now, especially now, but a lot in history, don't know when or why to use certain aspect ratios when they are given the opportunity. And I think one of the most misused ones of all of them is scope. People love to just use it because they're like, oh my God, it's a big fucking wide movie. People love to make their movie scope for no other reason than in their mind that means it's more of a movie and it looks like more of a movie and it's this big grand thing. But yeah, Long hated to... it. Long, Long hated it. I mean, his mentor famously said it was for shooting for uh, him. Sh- shooting uh, tombstones and snakes or something like that. Yep. Yeah. But if you don't know how to fill that space or you don't know why you're shooting so wide, there is 100% no point and it always makes your movie look and feel more like it sucks. <laughs> always because the because it draws attention to it right if something's that wide you're you're automatically with your eyes looking back and forth because you're seeing so much space to the sides and so your brain looks back and forth naturally with the way it's set up and that's why a lot of movies in the 50s kind of have this like cramped like stuffy vibe to them because it's so wide that people haven't learned how to use this new process yet this this lens and the sets are small, so they can't move very far. I mean, sadly, even like greats like Vincent Minnelli fell trapped to this. Like, there's certain yeah. scenes in yeah. Lust for Life, I think, of that feel hampered by this, it's like, so this stage bound widescreen scope that it's just like, darn it, man. Like, well, it looks, it's the same as any big change. When sound started to be used, people looked so stiff because they were nervous to move because where the mics were. But even the what the first scope film is the robe, and even though that one has you know an unreal budget and tons of extras and shit, there are scenes like that in that one too where you're like everyone clearly is trying to make sure they don't move too much. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so funny, and that movie's pretty cool too. But anyway, scope is hard. It's hard even long after. Well, not that long actually, (laughs) because hadn't been around that long. But all that to be said, this to me is a masterclass in how to use scope for a good goddamn reason. And even, even, you know, I'm not trying to objectively say this is a masterpiece. So even in scenes where well, you did at the beginning, you said that at the beginning, I didn't say, no, I didn't say objectively. I'm going to make my case why it is a masterpiece, but you know, okay. Anyway, even in the scenes that maybe do drag or moments that do drag, there is not a moment in this movie where that scope isn't used incredibly well. You're right and about that's that. why scene, that's why the scene you already talked about and why so many other scenes really fucking hit because the image that you're being given is so beautiful. So, so beautiful. Oh, and yeah. especially with the stuff that we're seeing at the time we're seeing it. Movies aren't doing a lot of this stuff yet. <laughs> it's happening in this one. Um, so before we go too far in it, of course, Howard Vernon is always killing it. Daniel White does the music here. Um, and I think I actually forgot one, and this is not the first time, but Daniel White would do the music for a one million of Jazz Franco's movies. A lot of them. I think he's responsible for a lot of the like free jazz Wolfgang Downer sort of sounding uh oh yeah. He does the shiny sex with them. 
he yeah. does yeah great stuff um but so danny white's doing the music um the opening even to this cut is pretty pretty scrumptious foreboding wise like it just feels off in that great way and i love nothing more than a movie about a small town or a small village where everyone knows something and then an outsider comes in and they're like bro trust me it's this it's this crazy curse um which also leads into well something that just franco in my opinion loves to explore but never get explicit about which is whether curses are just mental illness being untreated mm-hmm. and the idea of that um but it's why Franco never told you how you had to uh, interpret any of his shit, which is one of his greatest uh, strengths as a filmmaker. So he just puts it up there. Do do with it what you will. Um, the thing I uh, mentioned that I think is directly lifted here, the editing and sound design for murder sequences, killing sequences, that to me is 100% this is the movie where Argento gets it. Uh-huh. Franco does it again in other ones, but this is the one that l- looks exactly like and sounds exactly is the wrong word. Sorry, looks and sounds a lot like, and not in a bad way. We love so we're talking about Franco stole shit, everyone steals shit. We love it, whatever. But Argento's Deep Red and that Goblin score, it's very easy to swap with this one and the the death sequences in this. Um, the rhythm of it what its purpose is. I think this is where that comes from. And again, if there's another movie that did that first, I would love to see it, but I I'm think gonna, it's here. I think you're right. You know, like it, it feels really? very much further along in film history than it should be. Um, and that a lot of it is the sex and violence stuff. We get a great moment from one of the chambermaids who very clearly with a line of dialogue lets you know, she's turned on by S&M and Vice type things. Um, um, we have a sex scene with whipping in this one. Yes, we Obviously, do. Obviously, any Franco movies, strap in. If you don't like that, see you later. But it's it's pretty mild here still. But for, <laughs> for the, time, the time it came out, I imagine folks had some feelings. That's very important. And um, this is the first time we're going to really see that appearance of basically the influence of the Marquis de Sade who is going to get kind of uh, purified, is going to start a certain way in how most people depict Assad. And it is going to get closer and closer to the actual writings of Assad. I'm a huge fan of the writings of Assad, so I'm going to really cook on these Assad episodes. But we'll get to it. Well, we'll wrap up part one. Um, We hope... We hope this is a this is a fun journey for y'all. We are already having a blast and it's only gonna get better. We just want to be here to hopefully bring some more folks to the Jess Franco Island, not the James Franco one, the Jess Franco Island. Yes. Maybe we <laughs> are we're both the convert the perverse countess and we're bringing you to our little island and Ooh. we're gonna flay you. Delicious. No, I'm the I'm one of the I'm one of the uh, alien manservants and sex is crazy. Yeah, you wish. Yeah, you fucking wish. <laughs> well, we'll see. You, we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>